What's up, everybody? Welcome to Show Me the Meaning, Wisecracks Movie Podcast. Show me the meaning! Coronavirus time, baby! Let's quarantine it up! Sorry. That's right. <laughs> no, no need to apologize. Keep that energy up. My name is Jared, and I'm joined, as always, with the Show Me the Meaning crew. We got Austin. Yo, what up? And Ryan. What up, film fans? And today we're talking about The Platform, the 2019 movie directed by, I'm going to screw up all these names, Galder Gaztelu Udrita and starring Ivan Masage. I probably fucked all that up. Uh, just I want to uh, shout out to a fan of ours named Gautham, I probably fucked that up too, who said, I recently just watched a movie on Netflix called The Platform and I'm too dumb to understand its philosophical significance. When I saw it, I was almost sure you would have covered something like this, but was super disappointed. I mean, it would mean a lot to the few of us who liked this movie and thought it was really good. Hopefully... You will cover it, a hardcore Wisecrack fan. So, this one's for you, Gautham. Honestly, this movie is, as I was watching it, I know we'll get into it in a second, but it, this movie was made for this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> this is the show me the meaning, the movie. And I'm excited for you guys to do it because I am a little like him. I'm like, uh, do I know what the meaning of this? Continue though, Jared. I think you do. But before we get into our first impressions, I want to remind everybody that Ryan and I will be coming back for the squanch starting on Monday because Rick and Morty season four episodes six through ten will be coming back. Oh, shit. So so we'll be squanching it up all of May. So be sure to check us out on excuse me, on RSS. I didn't even realize that. Hell yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, we're on uh, Google Podcasts, Stitcher iTunes, whatever you usually listen to podcasts on, we're on there. It's called The Squanch if you're into Rick and Morty. But without further ado, let's get people's first impressions. I'm going to assume this is the first time everyone's seen this movie, but let's start with Austin. Definitely. What did you think about this movie? I mean, this is the perfect, if you're in lockdown and you can't go to the theaters and you're kind of just stuck watching streaming services or old shit, this is the perfect kind of, I would have never, ever, 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 ever heard of this film or seen it, but I got exposed to it because <laughs> of these strange times kind of film to watch. Um, look, man, I, I go back and forth. Like, I am kind of tired of these really heavy-handed... Like, what was the film that was the adaptation of the... the is it J.G. Ballard novel, The Tower, that was done by Wheatley, Ben Wheatley? Um, oh, High Rise. High Rise, yeah. Like, that movie fucking sucks. Yeah, man, and I really like Ben Wheatley, right? Like, I'm just tired yeah, of these too. really heavy-handed social commentaries where they're they're trying so hard to make it be like, oh, like... If we just come together or, like, the people on top, they're the ones exploiting <laughs> and, like, uh, they're just eating our food and shitting in our food. But that's just the way it is. It's just, like, it's, it's like, so obvious and so on the nose. But then... I thought you would have liked that, you fucking commie. Nah, man. I want some subtlety. I want some art. Like, like give me... Give me, give me something that's like not so clear. Like I wanna, I, I don't wanna be spoon-fed ideology. You know, like I just, ugh, I don't know, man. It's just not for me. So that was my, yeah. that was the first like thirty minutes. I was like, oh my god, this is gonna be some social political commentary on the ills of capitalism. And I get it, man. Like, but here's the problem. That's what I do all day. I work in a political economy department with Marxists. I'm teaching a class on Marxist political economy right now. My book is on Marxist philosophy. Right, like. This is what I do all day. So, like, I get it. So, like, if someone's going to teach me some shit that's, like, a critique of capitalism, it's got to have some, like, something cool to it. Like, some something unique. Like, like give me some Wolf of Wall Street. Like, that's what I want to see, right? Like, I want to see <laughs> a real... You think this is a unique concept? 
So, okay, so that, this was my first impression. And then I started to kind of get into, like, okay, Austin, just stop being a snob and just appreciate the film as the film. And then I kind of started to warm to it by, I'd say, like, halfway through towards the end. And then by the end, I kind of got into it because I saw something else in the film that I thought was really cool. And it was all the religious symbolism, the Messiah talk, that I thought mm. was really kind of interesting. And I have a, a weird take on what I think... It, the film might be kind of doing. I think there are two main themes that the film might be articulating. And then I got kind of into it. And then like all the gore and the violence and shit like that was just so over the top that I was like, this is kind of fun and so grotesque. And like the way they were eating and the sound effects. And like, then I'm starting to think that other people are like shitting in the food and like drooling on the food. And I'm like, this is so fucking gross. It just, then I got kind of into <laughs> the like tactility of the film. So by the end, I'd say I kind of enjoyed the experience, even though I think it's a great film. Okay, cool. Ryan, what did you think? That's such a, that's so funny that that was the, the chronology of your reaction to the movie for, uh, especially considering, you know, minor your politics, like, cause I had the exact opposite experience in a way where basically as the movie started, I kind of, as you're kind of, you know, the whole first half of it is a big setup for the world that you're in. And I was so into it. I was like, this is an awesome world. And even though I kind of, and I was on board, even though, yeah, it was heavy handed and it definitely, you know, you had high, big Snowpiercer vibes, big Cube vibes, big Saw vibes, all those kind of movies, you know, it's definitely playing into that genre. But I, I, I'm into, I like that genre, and this was such a well-made version of that. So to me, I'm like, like, okay, you know, let's see where this is going. Like, like, obviously, they're talking about capitalism, excess, hedonism, you know, class, class politics, struggles, you know, communism in a way, uh, blah, blah, blah. So I was interested to see where that was going, but I, but kind of in the back of my head, I'm like, all right, man, you know, this is pretty cool, this setup, but the, they better stick the landing to this movie. They better, this, you know, they, there better be a message, quote unquote, to quote the, the actual movie. In <laughs> the, the panna cotta is the message. Yeah. So, so, <laughs> so as the movie's going, you know, and I'm kind of like, wow, this is, this is getting awesome. Like every single turn, every single beat was like really cool and was elevating the, the drama of the story. And then just cinematically, it looked awesome. But then, yeah, they did not stick the ending, in my opinion. Like, like when it got to the fucking end, spoiler alert, you know, and it's like the girl's the message. That was when I'm like completely like, and he's repeating it like blank is the message. I'm like, all right, well, now I, I don't know what the fuck the message of the movie is, you know, like. <laughs> Like, I kind of thought I did before this, but, like, what, is the message that the children are our future? Is that, is it some Hallmark shit, you know? Like, I, you know, <laughs> please explain it to me, guys, because it's, like, yeah. like, like, and, and also I don't think that it really does, I, I thought for sure we were going to get outside the world or meet the administration, and maybe that's for the fucking Platform 2 or whatever, but the fact that we don't at all, it's so vague and open-ended about what happened, what is happening, what the world is, who the administration is. I thought it kind of really was a missed opportunity, and they kind of did the – they. it was a cheap ending. They didn't, they didn't explain anything. They gave us all the setup in the world, and then really were kind of like, well – guess what? This little girl's the message of the movie. Fuck you. <laughs> you know, it's kind of how I read it. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, uh, so I didn't like that, you know, but I'm excited for somebody to tell me that I'm wrong or whatever, you know, cause I'll, and we'll get into the, like why I don't think it's a one for one on capitalism or whatever later, I assume. But, but yeah, I, what, what did you think, Jared? 
Well, I didn't. I don't think either one of you are wrong. I actually agree with both of you. Uh, interestingly, I thought that the beginning was really on the nose, but I don't really mind that. I'm a sucker for the social thriller genre. I think yeah. I secretly like harbor wishes to one day write one because, like, a movie like The Purge to me is just so achievable based on the kind of stuff that we do at Wisecrack and like how my brain is so like trained to think about stories. So like movies like the purge and get out and this movie seem like just so achievable to write that I, every, every time I see one, especially this one in that it has this chamber drama types setting where it's all takes place in this one room basically. And all I have to do is change the numbers on the room. But um, so I overall dug the movie. I was actually kind of glad that the ending didn't have this on the nose social message because I don't think that the ills of the world or the ills of capitalism are easily solved. And so if it were to kind of come down on an easy answer of like, this is what society ought to do, or if, if we all just shared a little bit more, everything would be great. Or if we all just a little bit more conscious about the less fortunate, then everything would be fine because... I think that, you know, to the point that Ryan's always coming up with is that, you know, human nature is a little bit more complicated than that. And, um, you know, so we do need these uh, structures of incentive to keep everybody in line, so to speak. So I actually kind of enjoyed the open-endedness of the ending, and I actually enjoyed some of the open-endedness of the world. One of my favorite parts of this movie is the fact that he volunteered for this, but we don't know why. And to quit smoking and to read that book. <laughs> well, but was that it? Because he also got an accredited diploma. But what is the diploma? What does the diploma prove? What does the diploma get you? Yeah, yeah. What is it for, yeah. ultimately? Yeah, like, do you somehow yeah. get a promotion? Is he going to, you know, get to finally live the dream? And he's going to be able to get a mortgage and a home? Like, what? what is, like, ultimately driving him to get the diploma? Why does he want to quit smoking? Like, is it just because I think this, to... It seemed like the smoking thing was his, at least just how they shot it, was his main motivation, which I liked. That it was something so simple and innocuous. Yeah. And it is kind of funny that yeah. it's to quit smoking and to read Don Quixote. Like, it's like to finally read this classic text. Like, there's the only way I could do it is lock myself in a fucking hole for six yeah. months. Should have been like Infinite Jest or something, though. If it were if it were an American version, that's exactly... Don Quixote's fun to read. That's exactly... It would have been Infinite Jest if it was fucking like a, <laughs> some Brooklynite that's like, I gotta fucking read this book. Something finally. I will never read unless I'm stuck in a pit. <laughs> no, if it was Infinite Jest, he would have just dived down the hole and killed himself. Slit his throat. Gravity's rainbow, too. Yeah. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. All right, guys, let's go into a recap. So Goring wakes up on level 48 of a perverse prison known as The Hole, in which a descending platform provides them meals already picked over by the 47 levels of people above them. His cellmate, an older man named Trimagasi, tells him that every month you get reassigned to a different level, and every level down means less food. After a month, they wake up on the 171st floor, and since no food is left by the time the platform reaches that low, Trimagasi ties Goring up and threatens to slowly feast on his body. 
When the time comes for Trimagrassi to start carving Goring up, a woman looking for her child named Miharu descends to their level on the platform, kills Trimagrassi, frees Goring, and together they feast on him. After another month, Goring wakes up on the 33rd floor opposite a woman named Imaguri, who tries to convince everyone to ration out food so it will reach the bottom and everyone can eat, but people are too greedy to follow such rules. A month passes and Goring wakes up on the 202nd level, where Imagori has hung herself in order for Goring to eat. In another month, he wakes up on level 6 opposite a man named Baharat, trying to reach the top of the hole, but the people in the floor above merely shit on him. Goring and Baharat decide to go down every level and guard the food to make sure people only eat a rationed amount. On the way down, they meet a wise man who tells them to maintain the panacotta as a symbolic message to the people on the top floor, but they have to kill people to protect the food. The platform continues to descend to levels beyond which they believed existed, where everyone has been killed and or eaten out of desperation. In one of these lower levels, they witness Miharu be killed. They finally reach the last level, level 333, where they find Miharu's child and feed her the panacotta. Baharat dies from his wounds, and Goring descends to the bottom with the child, and the child goes all the way back up to the top, to level zero. The child is the message. End of movie. Wait, the, uh, 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 you don't see the one shot, though, right after the credits roll, and that's the child's centrifugal motion or whatever, the momentum carrying her up into the ceiling and a big splat on the on the top, you know? You know what I'm talking about? Wait, that happens? No, I'm saying that there's no way that that girl going <laughs> oh, as oh, fast oh, as she's oh, going on that platform does just stops on a dime and is fine. You know, she's just gonna, either going to fly she's into gonna... the sky or into the ceiling and she's going to yeah. die. <laughs> okay, well, all right. Well, oh, before yeah. we go any further, I want to give a shout out to our sponsors over at Skillshare. So we're all stuck inside right now. Some of us with nothing to do but keep our fingers crossed that things go back to normal as soon as possible. One thing you can do to keep your mind limber and keep yourself from going insane is learn some new skills, and that's where Skillshare comes in. If you're looking to explore new skills or get inspired or deepen your existing passions, Skillshare is an online learning community where you can explore and discover thousands of classes on a wide variety of topics like graphic design, productivity, creative writing, film and video, freelancing, and more. And I really want to emphasize the community aspect because during quarantine, finding a group of people online who share the same interests as you can be really rewarding because it's not like you're going to be meeting anyone IRL anytime soon. <laughs> so if you're looking for a class to take, <laughs> uh, in the past I've recommended classes like iPhone filmmaking and creative nonfiction, Write Truth with Style with Susan Orlean. But today I want to recommend something a little more lifestyle oriented, Everyday Minimalism, Find Common Creativity and Simple Living by Aaron Boyle. It's the perfect class to take in these times when everyone is trying to live simply, cheaply, and find a sense of calm while being productive. So Aaron will teach you how to navigate stressful situations and how to make the best with less, not more. And less is more, and living simply is something that I live by, so I definitely recommend Aaron's class. When you compare Skillshare to expensive in-person workshops or night classes, Skillshare is really affordable. An annual subscription is less than $10 a month. And right now they're offering Show Me the Meaning listeners two free months. All you got to do is go to Skillshare.com slash Wisecrack. Again, the Skillshare.com slash Wisecrack for two free months of unlimited access to awesome classes. And I hope after two months we will all be back to our normal lives, but who the hell knows. And now back to the show. All right. So I want to go back to the question because I've got a series of questions about this movie that I just want us to discuss. But I do want to go back to the idea of the diploma. Why do we think that Goring volunteered for this experience? 
he volunteered six months in what he called a vertical self-management thing. And what do you guys think that in this society, the diploma grants? That's what she called it. That's what the worker called it, right? The vertical self-management center. Oh, I'm sorry. That was what, the, yeah, you're right. The, the, the worker called it that. Yeah. And then, uh, but he called it an accredited diploma. I think that the, the, the way that, um, the way I take it in terms of the critique of capitalism, or whatever, is that, you know, they're, these people are obviously in a literal hell pit. You know, it, it sucks, but they've kind of tricked themselves into thinking, oh, man, I'm doing this for a good reason. Like, this is going to better my life. This is going to, you know, I'm, I'm willingly going to put up with this misery, you know, to to advance, quote unquote, myself at some point. You know, maybe, you know, hopefully I'm, I'm up, you know, more than I than I was when I started. You know, that's the kind of which is kind of the, the promise of capitalism. Like, oh, you know, you put in your time you'll get something out of it. So I think that this that's kind of what I took. Is that, what did you guys think? Is that right? <laughs> yeah, I thought it was really interesting because like the film is all about agency, I think. Like whether or not you have agency or not. And it seems that whether or not you are thrown in there because of a punishment or whether or not you choose to go in there, no matter what, the structure of the whole or the structure of this prism forces everybody into the same conditions. So even if you volunteer... Like, you think that I'm going in for a good reason. It doesn't matter. Everybody is reduced to the same kind of inputs as everybody else. And even if you think that you can somehow change people or that you can change things or that you can ascend, no, all of that is stripped from you because the prison forces you to play your part. Everybody has to fight for survival. You will be corrupted. You will play by the rules that everybody else is kind of forced into. So it's a real kind of like the structure takes away your agency. And so then the question is, is can you fight against that? So you get those moments where they try to transcend the structures that are being imposed upon them. So that's kind of what I thought is going on with the whole like the diploma thing we could say is, oh, we think that we have to go and get education to better ourselves, like Ryan just said, so that we can like earn a higher status or we can earn a better place in society. But really, in reality, it doesn't matter because the structures of the system are going to suppress you. So everything that you do from your position where you are is ultimately going to be futile, which is why the message is so interesting because that's the thing that can ultimately transcend. It's not the dudes, right? It's not the like well-equipped men that can do it. It's this tiny little child. So what's what's interesting about the tiny child and what's interesting about this this need for a message that is devoid of the person carrying the message that is outside of agency? That's what I think is interesting. Um, but that's that's kind of what I thought was going on there. It's an issue of agency. <clears throat> I agree that there's an issue of agency there. And, and I do want to go back to that. But my idea of the diploma, one thing I really liked about this is I thought that like maybe there was an element of going through this horrible experience is almost like a, you get a certificate of empathy for people that are less fortunate than you when you leave the thing or something like that. But more to what Austin was talking about with about agency is that you would think that by randomizing this experience where every month you wake up on a different level, it would teach you more empathy and that, uh, you know, just because everybody is in the same lot, because it's not like real life when you're born and maybe you're born into a very rich family and then you stay there for basically the rest of your life. This is different. This is every month you're either on top of the world or you're on the very bottom just fighting to exist. And I think ultimately the film makes an argument that um, 
kind of like more into like Ryan's worldview that we're all just savages, whether or not there's social structures in place that make us such, because nobody is learning anything from the fact that they are all on the, in the same boat, you know, like they are temporarily in heightened social conditions than other people but overall everybody's in the same boat and that's why i found it strange that people weren't recognizing that more and being more responsible to each other totally and yeah and in terms of going to a one-to-one on capitalism in the in the real world i mean just to play devil's advocate on the movie it's like like the it's it's the random aspect that is not applicable to real life right because i guess it's random in the sense of where you're born into like you just said jared like yeah people are born into certain uh means or they're born into poverty okay that's one thing you know but then you have your your the 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 remainder of your life to do something you know whereas in here you have a month and basically you know that next month you could be one of the rich people you could be one of the poor people and really anything that you do to change that any work that you're doing really has no effect on that it's just how it's kind of putting you in the mentality almost like the stanford experiment where it's like all right we're just telling you you're one of the rich people now you know and then that you see how that changes people's attitude and then you're like okay now you're one of the poor people and just you know and it's visually uh, because of the platform uh, you're on. You're kind of like, okay, now you treat people above you differently. I like that aspect, but that's not really how real life is, right? It's like, I mean, getting into the nitty gritty of it. I mean, you you can work to do stuff and gain stuff, and then you can see the fruits of your labor or whatever. And then yeah, that can affect you know your behavior and your 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 outlook to other people, but. It's not how the mechanics of this weird ass movie we watched are. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's clearly it's clearly over exaggerated, right? But I thought what was so interesting was is especially now the more you guys are talking about this, I'm thinking like, so they get to level is it six? Is that the highest level yeah. that they get to? Yeah. And so when they're at level six, you're kind of thinking, okay, and he starts thinking, wow, like I'm at top at the top now. If I could just organize this spontaneous solidarity, right? That's this term that keeps coming up, spontaneous solidarity, which is a really kind of intentional phrase that they keep reiterating. And it's like, well, if we can just organize this, like we're in a position now to let people know that if we can just ration, then we can pass it on. It's like, you know, just take one and pass it along, take one and pass it along kind of mentality. But um, the problem is, is that the lower levels they're in a, a situation of desperation. They don't know when their next meal is going to come. So they don't, because one day you might get food and the next day you might not get food. So it's kind of like on the day that you get food, you got to just fucking eat because you are not guaranteed. Maybe you haven't eaten for the last couple of days because the people above were hungrier or something, or maybe somebody died above. And so that's why now there's extra food or something like that. So you've got to just survive. So every level as you go down has a completely different strategy. When you're on the top, you can afford to try to pause and to ponder and to think and to organize and to set plates aside. But when you're at the bottom looking up, you're either wailing and screaming and pleading with the people above you to help them for their mercy and their grace, or you're just fucking grabbing and eating because <laughs> right. you, you don't know when your next meal is going to come. And so it's it's obviously super exaggerated, but I thought that was really interesting because it's only when you're at the upper levels where you can even pause to think. When you're at the bottom, you just got to fucking survive. And then when you, yeah. when you are thrown into those different – you yourself change. Change, right? Like when you're at the top, you can be like, okay, I can be more ponderous and maybe I can save the fucking prison. And then when you're at fucking level 200, then you're like, I got to eat a human because that's all I got. <laughs> yeah. I love well, that, honestly. Ex- I lo- oh, sorry. 
continue, Jared. Well, no, I was going to say to an extent, because there's one line in the movie that I really like, and it's when they're on level six and they looked uh, below them one level to the people on level seven and they say, hey, we're going to try this spontaneous solidarity thing. Please only eat what we've rationed for you. And he says, I'm on level seven. I'm entitled to stuff my face. <laughs> there's, yeah, there's this sense of entitlement that e- that basically and I think this is maybe a criticism of the film, is that everybody except our protagonist is basically like the old man, like Trimagasi, because they're all either, when they're at the bottom, they scorn everyone above them, call them sons of bitches, and then, you know, similarly scorn everyone below them and, like, you know, shit in their food, spit down, and that's just how everybody is. Fuck everyone below me, fuck everyone uh, above me. No matter what level they're <laughs> yeah, on, yeah, I love that part. I mean, it was twisted, but yeah, I love what you just said, Austin. That it's like it synthesizes like the capitalist mentality, you know, the the extreme, exaggerated form of it, you know. But uh, the, w- one more added point to my, you know, it's not a one for one, obviously, uh, uh, and it feels stupid to even pick the mechanics of this movie apart, but I'm going to do it anyway because we're on this podcast. But like, like, like. There's, it's a, it's, this movie should be taught in economics classes because it's like, it's about scarcity, really, you know, in any, in any supply and demand based system, you got, you know, it all works because of scarcity. And because there is one set amount of food that the, that the people up top are, are providing for them, you know, so graciously. But that's not really how capitalism works either, you know, there, you can grow the amount of food, the, the, the pie can get bigger, theoretically, you know, and it does, you know, it's not perfect, but, but like that's, that's how it works. And so it's kind of like this whole movie, the foundation of it is, you know, all the rich people are deciding how much, you know, the, they're giving you the exact amount of food that all that you guys could all uh, uh, break up and into. But, you know, that's not really there's not a set amount of food. Is well, how, would you, it, how would you respond to that, Austin? Yeah, well, so here's the interesting thing. Before I get into that, it's really interesting that we get little glimpses of the kitchen and the people who are preparing. And there's that guy who's clearly the head like of of the kitchen and yeah. he's like super yeah. fucking Trump. disciplined yeah he's like military <laughs> like this food is not prepared appropriately and then we find out that i think that everybody chooses what their favorite food is and that becomes an item that comes on to the platform right. right so what the fuck is going on there like so he says his favorite food and i don't know if he's joking or not but it's escargot and then he realizes oh fuck there's actually been snails on this platform and so i think we're led to believe that everybody before they go in they say what their favorite meal is and then that is prepared to like perfection at the sort of like behest of this military kitchen leader um who is like super super strict on everything and then the issue is is does that mean that you are just supposed to eat your portion like that you could just eat your favorite food every single day um, I mean, it's clearly not going to fit any sort of any sort of world of resources that we currently live. It it is definitely a, a scarcity. But the interesting thing is, it's a manufactured scarcity, right? So it's not in any way like um, I was just watching this video of these guys that were on this tropical island. It's called Palmyra um, over in the Line Islands, I think it's called. And basically, these people that are trying to preserve it, they're like, actually, the world is a world of abundance here. And it is when it's kind of left alone to flourish and things like that. There is so much for every single creature within that ecosystem to eat. So the question is, is that the natural state of reality? But humans then, because of our greed and exploitation that we then induce scarcity, and so we manufacture scarcity, or is scarcity actually like a natural state of affairs? In this film, scarcity is clearly manufactured, 
right? But it's manufactured right. with like your favorite meal, which I don't quite understand what the point of that was. <laughs> well, that, that's what's so fucked up about, or the, that's the beauty and fucked up part about capitalism, you know? It's like, it's like, yeah, is there enough food to feed everyone in the world right now? The answer is yes, but will that ha- like is that going to magically happen? The answer is no, and the reason that we have a, a you know more food than we would have is because there's a bunch of greedy people who are trying to sell it and trying to make money off of it and stuff, and somehow that ends up calculating to more people getting fed. You know, like well, hold on. At the end of the movie, do we actually know if there is enough food to feed everybody? Because there's way more levels at the bottom than they thought there were. That's true, yeah. But um, if everybody if everybody makes a choice, then the assumption is is that every single person has their fill, right? Well, that was when the woman said that by her calculation there were only 200 levels and then they wake up on the 202nd level and then she kills herself and then they realize as uh, our main character and Baharat are going down the levels. They realize there's up to 333. And so I wasn't sure if by the time they get there, they've just completely lost confidence in their mission because i mean the whole thing was that they were killing people who refused to take just the rationed amount but by the end there was no food anyway like it wasn't like they had anything left over at some point they were like all right fuck it we can't feed everybody we're just going to maintain this panna cotta as a symbol I don't know what the symbol is, to be honest. I think we should talk about that next because I kind of was in the same boat with Ryan. I don't really think the ending really means anything other than just the children are the future. We got to we gotta worry about the children. I didn't really get mo- anything more out of it than that. Did you, Austin? Well, okay. So here's the religious aspect that, that we haven't talked about yet. There's yeah. constant reference six, six, to... Six. Well, that, so here's the interesting thing. There's 333 floors and there's two people. So there's. Did you pick up on that, Ryan? Is that what you were? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I I noticed that. Okay. The math in my head. Yeah, me. I did it immediately, and it felt really kind of obvious. I was like, okay, so it's three thirty-three. There's two people. That's six six six, which is the number (laughs) that everyone says is the mark of the beast, right? What does that mean? Is it like a stamp you're gonna have to wear? The chef. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe right. So, but regardless, the idea is is that six 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 symbolizes somehow like the end of times, the apocalypse, something like that. And then there's all this reference to the Messiah, right? They constantly tease the main character. Like, what, do you think you're the Messiah? You're not the Messiah. Do you think you're the Messiah? And I then when my flesh. when Trimagasi gives up his body, he makes this weird, like, use of the Lord's Supper, like, you know, eating of the bread and drinking of the blood. And, and it's, like, related to cannibalism, which is kind of fucking rad because the early Christians were actually accused of being cannibals by the Roman Empire and shit like that, actually, at one point. So... It's kind of it's kind of this weird I don't know like mishmash of things, um, but so you get all this stuff about the Messiah, um, you get all this stuff about the apocalypse and potentially like this six 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 you know the 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 mark of the beast kind of antichrist end of time and then Tramagasi or whatever his name is gives up his body but then uses the language of the Lord's Supper like whoever eats of his bread and drinks of his blood or eats of his body and drinks of his blood sort of stuff. But it's kind of this weird in relation to cap or to uh, capitalism, to cannibalism, same thing um, to, uh, to cannibalism. And so I thought that was kind of funky and weird. And then, so I thought, okay. And then they're quoting from scripture a lot. And then, so here was my thing. And Don Quixote. Yeah. And Don Quixote a lot. And so I'm thinking, I'm thinking maybe it's trying to say that like you as a dude, 
everyone's trying to be like the messiah right we talk about like the white savior complex where it's like we the wealthy in the west think that we can go into the world and we can change the world and so like uh especially if you're a dude right and so this is how the world has typically run and we try to go in and we try to change everybody according to the way that we understand things and and that oftentimes leads to imperialism colonialism etc etc so but then what you get is the fact that the message is beyond the I got what he was saying though I think right like the message isn't the person. The message isn't the individual person that can go down to the levels and save the people. Rather, the message is something innocuous like panacotta, because what that symbolizes is hope. The panacotta symbolizes that actually food can reach the bottom and it connects you to other people. So then it supposedly gets up to the top level and you're supposed to be able to be like, oh yeah, like like I I I can uh I can actually contribute now. And that's supposed to like somehow connect everybody in an act of spontaneous solidarity. But that doesn't end up working. But what does work is the human child. And the human child is a girl. She's young. And she is obviously of, like, Asian descent. So she's not... And this is a Spanish film. So she's not European. She's not Western. So there's something about, like, the indigenous, the child, the woman, the other, and that that is the message. And it's something that exists beyond... The person that can control it like you have to the message will just be heard and I think there's like this weird mystical element that if you just let that message sing then you don't have to like beat people over the head you don't have to tell people we must do x y and z you rather just show them and they will just kind of get it it's like this um like illumination that can happen so there's this like interesting religious like conversion that can take place if you just encounter that other that 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 other and for here it's the young girl who's obviously indigenous or something like that. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's interesting. What do you think though the uh, symbolism is that that in terms of why that the worker lady was like there are no kids here, there are no kids here. I promise you that. And then there's a kid there. Like, how did that happen? Why did that happen? You know. Yeah, and then what's the relation with that? And what's what's the mother's name? Or the we, I mean, we're assuming it's the mother. What's her name, Jared? Mahar. Oh, it's uh, Miharu. Miharu. Yeah, and then what's the symbolism yeah. with her constantly, every day, trying to find her child? Is that because like, like, uh, like indigenous peoples have had their children taken away? Like that, there's been a separation of family. Um, did she sneak her in? Like you know how everyone's allowed one thing so maybe maybe that's it maybe that's what the maybe that's it you're allowed to bring in one thing but that's not documented as being a prisoner so maybe the daughter or the girl at the end maybe she was the thing that maharu brought in you know like the one woman brought in a dog maybe she brought in a girl how the she fuck brought did in that little, little girl, girl survive then, too yeah yeah i have no idea well, uh, she's, especially she's being message, at the bottom man. she's magic dude and, and, one more little nitpicky thing too it's like she literally was hiding there underneath the bench and all the guys did was went down there they fed her dessert and then they went down one more level to the black pit part like the girl couldn't have figured that out on herself you know uh, on her own like yeah i mean a lot of things don't make sense first of all she's probably (laughs) been there for a fortnight at least okay you know she's uh, probably should have starved by now. Uh, I also just, 
to what Austin was saying, and I believe his interpretation, I think it holds a lot of weight, but this is one of those examples where the subtext of the ending actually makes more sense than the actual text of the ending, because what are we even supposed to believe just from a very surface level analysis, what happens when the child reaches the top? Are we supposed to believe that all the cooks realize that there's actually hope to this situation, that uh, whatever they're perpetuating is unjust, and so they're going to rise up against the guy who's really pissed off that there's a hair in the food? I mean, <laughs> is that what we're supposed to believe? I, I really don't know what we're supposed to take from that. Yeah, this is where I think there's that religious that that religious element. It's like a faith thing, right? That you're supposed to believe that you can actually or that things actually can change, but it's not that you can change them. Like you can't through your sheer will and your cunning and your clever strategies and you partnering up with people and trying to like force people. You can't do it. There has to be a message, and the message has to be detached from the person, right? Like like that's one of the problems. People are like, "Oh, like Obama's going to save us. Bernie's going to save us. This person, Trump is going to save us. You know, the person is going to save us. This film is like, no, 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 it's not the person. It's the message. And that's what's interesting is what is the power of the message that can transform people, that can prick people, that can that can convert them. And that's the issue. The Panna Cotta was supposed to be the message, but this girl becomes the symbol of something even more powerful, more empathic, more excessive, more potentially transformative. So I think that's what's kind of going on there. And it's it's a real it's a real like mystical kind of kind of thing that it's that it's propagating, you know? Yeah, I wanted to talk a little bit more about you're talking about agency and people keep on and agency as it relates to God. So you mentioned earlier that there's some weird thing with Trimagasi stating scripture and but one thing I noticed is that people are constantly asking, "Do you believe in God?" And the way that I took this is that it's another level of kind of like another one of those scapegoats. Like, because basically every month when you wake up on a level of the tower, it's like being born and your level is your facticity or the conditions under which you were born. And people are always blaming the administration for the lot in life and their actions. So at the beginning, uh, our protagonist says that I'm not blaming anybody, the administration, the people above us, the people below us. I'm not blaming anybody for you eating people except you. And then at the end, when, or towards the end, closer to the end, when Trimagasi in like his ghost form comes to visit our protagonist, the protagonist tells Trimagasi, you made me do it. You made me eat you. And so there's like this, this change. And to me, like God is just another one of those scapegoats that people say like, oh, it's God that made me do it. It's the administration that made me do it. It's this other person that made me do it. It's the conditions under which I was, I woke up under that made me do it. Um, but it is interesting that our protagonist ultimately does fold and his values ultimately don't hold up against, uh, I guess, what you could call the savage human, savage human nature. I don't know. Wait, I, I thought they do hold though. Well, but he he ends up he, he ends up eating uh, Trimagasi, and he said that he wouldn't do that, and that he was blaming. He was saying that you alone, Trimagasi, are guilty of right. eating other people. But, That's but, something I'll never do. And he does end up eating Trimagasi. Right, but all I'm saying is that yeah, he, that happens. What like relative like earlier in the movie, but then at the end, you know, uh, to me, I took it that you know he's he's there trying to start this revolution, 
And then he sees a girl and he has that moment where he's like, I need to go feed this girl a dessert, you know, and that's kind of his coming back to being a human moment kind of thing, right? I guess the whole thing is so messy because he's going down there to quote unquote save people, but all he's doing after a certain number of floors is literally just killing everybody. I was was going to bring that up because I love that that happened. I love that 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 I don't love that those people died, but I'm just saying that this movie uh, deals with the brutality and messiness of life. Like where basically it's like in any other movie you have this revolution going on, and yeah, the whole point is they have to inspire people, and if they do do if they do take their will against out against people physically then they're kind of like you know seen as the bad guy and here it's just the logical thing for them to do it's like yes first you talk to them and then if they don't listen to you then you hit them with your fucking stick you know and then it's like okay well and isn't is that isn't that uh, that good or bad i mean isn't that what christian colonialists did you know they went over they throughout history have been doing that yeah and then even still like there's still a great history of of people going and trying to preach and trying to convert them, thinking that the Holy Spirit is just going to prick the people's hearts, the listeners' hearts, and then they don't, and then the people just get fucking impatient and pissed, and then they kill them. So I know what's best for you, and if you don't listen to it... Exactly, exactly. If you don't listen to it, then fuck you. Then I'm going to bash you with a fucking stick. And then that happens. So, But what I wonder is, is so him giving in and eating Trimagasi, that's him falling into quote-unquote sin, right? Like he has his principles, but then he ultimately caves in. But is that last moment a moment of salvation? He recognizes that he needs to get over his pride, that he can't save people, that he isn't the one that is the Messiah, that he needs to get over his own sort of self-aggrandizing dreams and thinking that he can do it, and he needs to relinquish control and just kind of give over to the message. And isn't it interesting that the gospel is called the message? right? That's the good news. That's what literally the word euangelion means, which we translate into gospel. It means the good message. So it's the good message or the good news, right? So it's the good news. It's the message. Then we can also talk about the word logos in ancient Greek, which is the word. So it's something that's spoken and excessive and beyond, you know? Go ahead, Jared. Sorry, man. And I like that reading because it also connects with why he's reading Don Quixote, is that his quest at the end to save the Panacotta is really just as delusional as the quest of Don Quixote. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it's ultimately, I think, even more maybe than the economic, the socioeconomic critique, this film seems to be a very sort of like kind of Christian commentary, right? Like it's coming out of a very sort of Catholic country a country where people kind of were probably all raised going to mass. Um, And this idea of free will, and if God puts you in these situations, you're still responsible, and you can have all your principles, you're still going to fall. But don't think that you can change the system. you got to kind of have to give yourself over to something that is bigger and more than you. And in your humility, you can be saved. And that's what happens. He's literally humbled as he descends down into the pit further and further and further. He's humiliated to the point where he has to give up his life. And that's that famous Jesus quote where he says, if you want to save your life, you'll lose it. You know, take up your cross daily and follow me stuff. This dying to self kind of thing. So he dies to his own hubris that he thinks that he can actually create this spontaneous act of solidarity. And rather what he does is he gives over to the message and then that ascends. And she, when she gets on that platform, she's ascending, right? It's like an apotheosis almost. Like a, she's going up at this like, crazy speed and there's this like triumphant music and it's all like a rocket yeah 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 totally going up into the heavens you know 
Yeah, it's like the second coming kind of thing. Like maybe she's the second coming in a way. I dig it. All right. Um, anything you guys want to bring up before we go into the mailbag? I was just going to say people should see this film because it's kind of interesting and it's on Netflix. So so go check it out. I, I, I was just going to say that, that you know, when, when uh, just one little weird nitpicky thing, like when the old man tied the guy up and was like, I'm only going to eat a little bit, one of your toes or something every once in a while. He had already told the story about him catching the dead people before and eating them. Why couldn't he just, you know, make some net or something and catch one of those falling people again? Why do you have to do his roommate? Uh, it's just, you know, convenient. It's there. He's oh, yeah. done it before. What, what are you going to make a net out of? Yeah, I mean, you're right. All right, moving on. Also, if we're going to be nitpicky, the one body, I, I don't remember if it's the old guy. I think it's the old guy. Yeah, when he dies, but he's been dead for multiple days. And then the protagonist cuts him open and he bleeds like he's been alive, like like he's alive. But the dude's been dead for like days, potentially weeks, right? So come on, man. There wouldn't be that much blood. Yeah. So let's go into some voicemails. We got, uh, you can hit us up at 213-534-8807 or 21ElfHut07. So last week we did Melancholia. Uh, how do you feel about that movie, Ryan? Um, I I mean, I, it, I have... Good and bad things. It's not Lars von Trier's my favorite of his. Probably in my bottom of his. I love I love the imagery of the planets exploding. I'll never forget that. Or the planets oh, coming down on Charlotte Gainsbourg. That's pretty awesome. What'd you think? Yeah, hell yeah. Uh, I think I it was actually my second time I saw it since we saw it at AFI Fest. I believe you were there, right? Oh yeah, yeah, With, I was uh, there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was, it was the second time I saw. it. I liked it a lot more the second time. We'll skip the uh, voicemails for today. Let's go right into the mailbag. So right. sorry for the technical difficulties, everybody. Still send us some voicemails. We'll try to get figured out before next week. It's 213-534-8807 or 21ElfHut07. It's where the elves fucking party. All right. We got one from Joe. Joe says, I'm a huge fan of Show Me the Meaning, and I'm very appreciative of all your recommendations of excellent movies and fostering great conversation. One thing that really stood out to me while watching the first half of Melancholia was how oddly Michael, Justine's husband, and Tim, the man Justine had sex with, behaved throughout the night. They have this dead-eyed, automaton-like way looking of speaking. Jack, Justine's boss, seems to openly brag about Tim's stupidity. Uh, does this imply that we're seeing Justine's perspective of these people, or are they truly this odd? Are Jack and Tim depicted as strange because they represent the craven advertising industry? Is Michael some empty, sad sack of a human that <laughs> has his fiancé's boss be his best man? I'd love to hear your thoughts, Best Joe. Um, I like the I like this point. Um, I think that we are probably meant to be pretty critical about the advertising industry. I think Austin spoke to that during the podcast last time. So the fact that these people, like the the guy that she has sex with, is just some goon who is what is he he's uh the nephew and yeah everyone is a nepotist in this one because michael is the somehow related to justine's boss and justine's boss is somehow related to the guy that she has sex with and everyone is just kind of a stooge and so i i do think that they are deliberately cast to be undesirable humans I mean, it's a Lars von Trier uh, movie, baby. There's not many uh, likable people in it, for sure. Yeah, you know? for sure. Uh, I don't know if you got those messages from Joy, but we're apparently uh, everyone else could hear everyone else could hear the voicemails, but us. That's so. so that's okay. That's so weird. I apologize, everybody, but it seems like we got everything figured out. So let's try that voicemail from Elliot one more time. Hey, Westside people, this is Elliot uh, calling about your 
most recent Show Me the Meaning podcast about melancholia. Uh, great, interesting discussion. Thank you for that. I just wanted to comment on the uh, the Wagner music, the prelude to Tristan Isolde. I'm a classical composer, so I just wanted to put my two cents in here. Um, you know, Wagner and uh, Friedrich Nietzsche actually knew each other pretty well. Young Nietzsche um, and Wagner hung out at his estate, um, and uh, Nietzsche, a lot of his uh, sort of more seminal, seminal ideas come from his rejection of what he saw as um, Wagner's uh, ex- version of pre-existentialism. Uh, Tristan and Isolde, by the way, is was Wagner's explicit attempt to express um, Schopenhauerianism in in opera. Um, the idea of uh, uh, sort of not being able to realize meaning or fulfilled existence except through death. And so the whole story um, of the opera is about these two lovers trying to um, understand each other, understand their purpose and 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 in life and in existence and only manage to do so through um mutual suicide essentially. So anyway, I just wanted to mention that uh, you know, these romantic composers especially, but classical musicians in general have a lot of uh philosophical weight behind the things they do. So when you hear a piece of classical music in movies, very often there's a lot to look into behind that. Anyway, thanks for all you do and uh looking forward to the next one. Stay healthy everybody. All right, we could actually hear that this time. So thank you, Elliot. Thank yeah, thanks a lot for that email. Uh, yes, Wagner, Nietzsche, one of the famous bromances. They actually had a falling out, I believe, when Wagner was writing some one of the parts of the Ring Cycle. But um, I did think that Tristan and Isolde was. Uh, I, I remember I took a whole class on Wagner in college. I'm sure that Elliot knows much more than I do about it. But I did remember that it was particularly. Schopenhauerian or existential and so I did think it was perhaps relevant that to pick Wagner for that particular piece um <laughs> I love I how excited were you when you got a, a question about opera Jared did you uh... I was excited I was like fuck yeah Elliot <laughs> the fact that we have a, a a composer that listens Elliot write us write us some sweet tunes we'll play it on we'll play it on here man write we us a new, a new intro song <laughs> Jared will play your yeah. questions every week. Just write more opera questions. Yeah, more opera questions and more music, man. Uh, but anyway, uh, I'm going to go ahead and... Oh, you know, let's do one one more uh, email from uh, Mateus. It says, I'm Mateus from Brazil. Just wanted to point out that in the scene of Melancholia, where the horse and the electric car cannot pass through the bridge, if you got to pay attention to the horse's name, Abraham, the common patriarch of Christianity, Islam, Judaism, and some other religions, meaning that no matter your beliefs, the world cannot be saved. We can say the same about the electric car. Neither science nor any rational knowledge can save world save the world from annihilation. Thank you and sorry for my English. It's not my primary language. Well, Mateus, your English is way better than my Spanish or my Portuguese, so I think you did a damn good job, and I like your reading a lot, uh, so thank you for that. Also, pro tip, if you're writing a script out there and you need to give any character names or or pet names, just open up the Bible and pick one, and then you're, you'll get all sorts of these weird interpretations that you never even knew about. Just people will uh, read into it. It's going to be great. Yeah, and then you'll make Darren Aronofsky's mother. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that was our first podcast, All right. wasn't it? Uh, oh, yeah. That, that was, was our first podcast. Three. That's yeah, right. First three. First three. 
It was uh, Boss that. Baby. <laughs> See, I I was going to leave Boss Baby for last one, but I don't remember what this. Oh, the other one was Drive. Oh, yeah. was it Mother Drive and Boss Baby? That's how we started this podcast. What, what a three, dude. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's how we started educating people on the yeah. intricacies of themes and cinema. And then we quickly went into Cronenberg after that, I think. So that was that was. I good. think you're right. Yeah, yeah Videodrome. I was yeah. Saying. Just had to. And I, I think we did Old Boy, too. Anyway. Yeah. Trip down memory, memory lane. lane. Anyway, uh, send us emails, movies at wisecrack.co, voicemails 213-534-8807. Appreciate Ryan and Austin joining me. Where can we find you guys on the internet, Ryan? Oh, hell yeah. On Ryan Shorts on YouTube or Twitter or at Ryan Shorts. I'm, during the quarantine, I, my production has gone up tenfold. I'm putting out shorts every three or four days just because i have nothing else to do so yeah go check me out there and subscribe baby i love you yo and not only that if you want to see the first project that ryan and i worked on after moving to los angeles you got to check out ryan starring in tune date it's uh he uploaded it last week i was the uh can i claim director of photography on absolutely this project, dude Ron. this is our first yeah. big collab probably our best big collab. yeah <laughs> so back in 2010 when me and ryan were sharing a room that cost 300 dollars a month between the two of us we made <laughs> we made this bizarre short film that ryan just graced everybody by uploading so check yes. out tune date on ryan's shorts oh i'm going to watch that right now while i eat breakfast i'm just dude, letting you, should. you know I'm, I'm really proud out of it a hundred percent has I'm almost half of, of the views for it uh he's responsible for he, he loves the, he loves tune day <laughs> i show I, sh I show it to everybody all right austin where can we find you buddy yeah you can hit me up on twitter austin underscore hayden uh insta aus underscore h-a-y i do a philosophy podcast with a buddy of mine called owls at dawn and uh just released a feature film we decided to just throw it up on youtube it's called Inventing the Future with uh, an avant-garde experimental director by the name of Isaiah Medina. It's an adaptation of the best-selling book called Inventing the Future, Post-Capitalism in a World Without Work. If any of you are familiar with that, it's You made it's a feature film, Austin? Yeah, so it's been in production for the last four years, and uh, we were funded by the uh, Canada Council for the Arts and the Toronto Arts Council, um, and it's an adaptation of a book. It's this weird experimental avant-garde. I mean, you could hardly call it a documentary. It's super wacky, montage-y. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's a, it's a trip. That's for sure. So if you're interested in avant-garde cinema, and I mean that with a capital and a, with a capital A, um, then check this shit out because it's super experimental. But we just decided to release it live on YouTube because the festival circuit is collapsed right now. So, but you can just Google it, uh, or YouTube it, inventing the future and it will come up. It's wild, crazy shit. I can't wait. I'm gonna watch the shit out of that. All right, rock and roll. All right, thanks everybody for watching. We will be back in two weeks, and uh, thanks for listening. And we'll see you later. Goodbye from Hollywood, California. Be safe out there, Phil Fest! Are we, are we cut? Are we cut? Bye!